Good morning. My name is Mason. Um, I'm so glad to be here with you today. I'm excited to um, dive into God's word with you. Um, but as I start um, this week, I was reminded of a story of a missionary um, who their missionary work, their organization, um, they rescued women out of um, sex trafficking and slavery um, in Asia. Um, and I don't remember exactly when I heard this story, um, but I remember distinctly this missionary sharing a story of a woman that they saved from trafficking and they brought her to their facility where they rehabilitated, it was a safe house. Um, but this woman, um, after going to the safe house and rehabilitation, actually escapes, goes away and goes back into slavery. And this was something that when I heard the story at the time that was just utterly confusing to me. I'm like, why would she do that? But as the missionary explained, the abuse that one endures in that kind of a situation, out of, nece out of necessity for survival, it disforms the way they see themselves, the way they see life, the way they see the world so severely and profoundly. They're conditioned to stay in that place of slavery. Uh, the girl later returns, uh, returned and, and completed you know, rehabilitation, went to the safe house, uh, was able to heal. But the healing journey um, in that place took so long, so much work and so much time. She had been, and anyone in that situation have been so deeply violated in every way. The healing and the rebuilding starts from the very foundations to the way that they see the world themselves, life, what is true. And you couldn't just go about saving them from that situation and then teaching them work skills and life skills and getting them a job and expect that everything would just be better. And this confronted my assumptions in hearing this story I'd never identified because I thought, wouldn't you just be so happy to be free? Wouldn't you know that that freedom was going to make everything better? Wouldn't you know that where you were was wrong and what you're being offered is better? And the answer was no, and it gave me an important perspective on humans and how we work and, and really ultimately how abuse and that kind of absolute violation and mistreatment, how it forms us. My initial thought was to blame the girl. Why wouldn't she know better? But I, I began to understand how she was conditioned to stay trapped. In today's reading, uh, we read a passage from the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter two, and he focuses on two aspects of the Christian life, status and substance, and that's my title for today, status and substance. There are other phrases that we could use and substitute here for status and substance, because obviously as a pastor, you have to find the alliteration, you know, two S's, status, substance, sounds better than justification and sanctification. You're like, oh, that's a snoozer, we're not gonna go to church today. Uh, but these are words that we could substitute here. Status, substance, justification, sanctification, salvation, transformation, faith, and works. These are theological ideas that are so intertwined and are so important for how we understand how we relate to God and how God relates to us. Their intertwinedness has made them a massive topic of theological debate in the church over its history. In fact, this was a major component of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, where Martin Luther gives us sola fide, or justification by faith alone. Now at that time, this was a necessary pendulum swing away from the confusing works-based theology of the Catholic Church of his time. But even Luther struggled with these two topics. 
uh, of faith and works. He openly criticized and disliked and wished that the book of James wasn't in the Bible. The book of James uh, chapter two, verse 17 saying, so you see faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So here I am this week thinking about these two things and my head is kind of spinning. So I wanted to try to orient myself, break down these two ideas. What is our status, justification, faith? This is the action of being made right with God, which we understand from verses like Romans 10:9, where it says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Through your acceptance, through my acceptance and believing that Jesus is God, that he died and rose again to deal with our sins once and for all, you receive not only forgiveness, but a new status. You were once outsiders, but you now belong to the family of God. You have been made right with God, fully reconciled to him through faith. That's justification. Our status has changed. But when we look at sanctification, our substance, our transformation, so we believe that we are made right with God by faith alone and not by works, but it is also evident in scripture that God fully intends that our works reflect our new identity, that we would become more like Jesus. I mean, if we wanna simply define sanctification, it's the process of becoming more like Jesus that the substance of our life would change. Our thoughts, our emotions, our words, our actions, that we would begin to be like, look like, act like Jesus. But the problem is that just because our status has changed with God when we believe and confess faith, our struggle with sin does not. We do not immediately, automatically, or magically become like Jesus. Wouldn't it be great if we did, but we don't. Passages like James 2 and Matthew 7 expose this truth that faith without works is dead, that accepting the work of being made right with God through faith without going on the journey of becoming more like Jesus is to miss the point entirely. Accepting the work of being made right with God through faith without going on the journey of becoming more like Jesus is to miss the point entirely. So these, again, I, I say these ideas had my head spinning a little bit as recent as yesterday and this morning and right now. But what does God really want? He wants relationship with us first. God wants relationship with us and he also wants to heal us. He wants relationship with us and he wants better for us. He wants to heal us. So the best that I can figure, our problem is that our sin makes us incapable of true goodness without God which makes us incompatible with him. This breaks God's heart and it broke his heart and he loved us so much and so dearly that in our sin and brokenness, he dealt with the problem that we couldn't deal with on our own and he reconciled us to himself. This work is enough for us to get to heaven, which we understand from passages like Luke uh, 23, with a criminal hanging next to Jesus on the cross who can do nothing to turn his life around, but he asks essentially for mercy and God says, surely today you will be with me in paradise. We also have the parable of the vineyard worker in Matthew 20, where the people who are invited to work in the vineyard at the beginning of the day get the same exact reward as the people invited to work at the end of the day. This work of faith is enough for us to spend eternity with God, but for those of us who have the privilege of living past the moment we are reconciled to God, God clearly wants us to go on a journey of becoming more like him. 
We live in this tension of the already and the not yet kingdom. And we walk in the tension of our new nature, forgiven and free from sin by the spirit, while also our old flesh and sinful nature still tugs at us. If we're given the opportunity to journey into Christ-likeness and we don't accept it, then as James 2 says, our faith is dead and useless. So even as I, I can't quite, quite wrap my head around it, the illustration I shared with you at the beginning of the girl in slavery who gets rescued and then goes back and then is rescued again is the best picture that I have right now of how God relates to me and how God feels about me. That even though I may be such a mess and so broken and almost incapable of experiencing the freedom and the goodness he's offering me, God accepts me and he brings me in as soon as possible. He wants me close, he wants me right with him, he wants me right there with him, even if I'm not quite ready for it. And he walks with me, sometimes even so slowly, guiding me to a better and a fuller life that lives in freedom from the junk of sin and death and that experiences God's new life, not only in me, but in the world around me. So, status and substance, front and center in today's passage. So what I'd like to do um, is jump into the passage a little bit, uh, into chapter two, where we can take away, um, what, and to see what more we can take away from sta about status and substance, what Paul says about it. But to kind of give you a little overview, a little, let's look back. In the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to a group of Christians who are maybe young in the faith and need to mature in their faith and mature in their understanding of Jesus. So in chapter one, Roger did a great job of showing us how Paul is emphasizing the supremacy, the sufficiency, and the significance of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now in chapter two, uh, Paul is kind of making a, a, I guess, a switch. He, he talks about Jesus and his significance and his supremacy, but he's making a switch over to his next objective in the book, which is to encourage the Colossians to mature in their faith and what it looks like to become mature in Christ. But Paul, who is a brilliant writer and thinker, often will accomplish multiple tasks at once in his writing. He's a multitasker and it makes me mad at him. It's hard to read sometimes. So while he is teaching the Colossians about status and substance, about maturing in Christ and understanding the significance of Christ, at the same time, he's addressing false teaching and beliefs that may be impacting or threatening to impact the Colossians' faith. And so as I jump in today, the first thing I want to talk about is Paul and the Judaizers. Paul and the Judaizers. So scholars debate where the false teachings come from that Paul is addressing. But I believe and I'm convinced that they come from the Judaizers. Now, who are the Judaizers? Some of you know, some of you might not. That's okay. But the Judaizers are a group of people who Paul comes up against multiple times in his letter, the book of, or letters. The book of Galatians is a great example of that. But this is a group of Jewish Christians that believe that Gentiles must follow the Mosaic law of the Old Testament to be true Christians. And Paul spends a lot of time fighting against this idea. This is a textbook example of what we would now call syncretism or the sinking of beliefs that aren't compatible. The irony is that Christian faith does come from Judaism, but Paul, what he's fighting for is to clarify what did and didn't carry over 
in Judaism. And this had a great impact on what it meant to be a Gentile and to be accepted into God's new family, to understand what did the work of Jesus really mean, not just for the Jew, but for every person who wasn't a Jew. Now, as I read um, and studied, I was just talking to someone over there about how I encountered a lot more information than I could share today. Uh, I practiced this and I went for like an hour and 15 minutes. I was like, all right, time to cut. So I'm not gonna do that today, I promise. I might've just scared some of you. 35 minutes is my goal. Uh, But there were verses plentiful in this passage that showed, I I believe, convinced me that Paul is defending the teaching of the Judaizers. And I see this in verse 8, verse 11, verse 14, 16 through 18, 21 through 23. Uh, I don't have time for all of those, but if you want to have a really nerdy Bible conversation with me later, find me. I'd love to talk about it. But we're going to jump into verse 11, where uh, where Paul says, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. So this verse with 100% certainty is referring to the theological issues Paul has dealt with in other letters regarding the Judaizers, because the Judaizers taught that non-Jew or Gentile Christians had to be physically circumcised to become God's people, which was the requirement of the Old Testament law for any non-Jew to be accepted into the people of God. See, under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic law, under the, the laws of the Old Testament, race was the primary driver behind who belonged to the family of God and who did not. So if you were a Jew, you were the people of God. If you were not a Jew, you were not. Now we saw a few exceptions for this in the Old Testament and their rite of passage to essentially become a Jew, to become a, like it wasn't just becoming the people of God, but the process was about becoming in a, in a sense Jewish and circumcision was that rite of passage. They, they would be considered proselytes and people of Israel. But Paul saw one of the primary intentions of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as the expansion of God's family to every family on earth, regardless of race, of sex, or socioeconomic status. And this new covenant life did not require Gentiles to observe every Old Testament rule. And we actually see this later on in the passage in verses 16 and 21, where he says, don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating uh, certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbath. And then verse 21 or 20 and 21, he says, so why do you keep following the rules of the world? Such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Paul is absolutely here referring to laws from the Old Testament that he sees Gentiles as not required to follow to be fully accepted into the family of God. Paul explains his thinking here too by explaining that true circumcision is the circumcision of the heart and the flesh, of the sinful nature and allegiance to anyone but Jesus. So as in the Old Testament, physical circumcision was your way into becoming the people of God. Paul is saying that the spiritual circumcision, the cutting off of your sinful nature and your flesh, this is the new passage into the kingdom of God and it is available for everyone. This work is sufficient and was accomplished by Jesus and no other work is needed. So this leads us right into the second objective of Paul, which is the status of the Colossians. 
He wants to address their faith, their status as the people of God. And he wants the Colossians to be assured that they have security in their relationship with Christ. They are secure in their status with Christ. So I'm gonna read verse 11 again, but also verses 12 and 13. It says, when you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. So, If we put ourselves in the Colossians' shoes or any Gentile's shoes, to hear the teaching of the Judaizers that you are not like fully the people of God because you have not been circumcised, because you have not followed these Old Testament rules, if we put ourselves in their shoes, this would be very concerning. This would take away a lot of security, a lot of what they had understood up to that point about themselves and how they relate to God. Asking questions like, is my faith even real? Am I really right with God? Am I really one of God's people? Because what the Judaizers are teaching would bring those things into question. But Paul wants the Colossians to know unequivocally that their status as members of God's family is secure purely and exclusively through faith in Jesus. Their status as members of God's family is secure. And that in accepting the free gift of Christ through the cutting away of their sinful nature, they are fully accepted by God as they are. Nothing more or less is required. Now, it can be hard for us to understand the significance of that for us today, but suffice it to say that without the work of Paul, he did fighting against these type of ideas for really defining what the work of Christ meant for every non-Jew. If it wasn't for that, many of us wouldn't be in this church or in a church this morning. So I can't wait to give Paul a high five in heaven for that one. Thank you, Paul. But in verse 13, um, in verse 12, I wanna move forward or I guess look back at that. These verses remind us of how we participate in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So I wanna read those again. You were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins, because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sins. So we participate literally in the death and the resurrection of Jesus through our journey of faith. We die and are buried with Christ and we accept Jesus, our sinful nature, our sinful desires, we die to them. And then we are raised to new life with Christ. We are a new creation, we have a new life. And this verse in the larger context of Colossians and the larger context of the New Testament, it reminds us of the tension that we live in as Christians between the old age and in the new age. We sometimes call this the already not yet kingdom, but this verse, this passage reminds us of that we live in the new, in the new age, that we are a new creation. So when Jesus returns, so we believe that Jesus is going to return someday, and when he does, his kingdom will be established forever. And everything in the world, that was broken by sin. 
every hurt, every pain, every loss, even death itself. When Jesus returns, all that is messed up about our world, Jesus is going to fix. He's going to set all that was wrong right. This is the true hope of the gospel, that everything that is broken about this world, God came to fix in Jesus and will one day completely fix in and through Jesus. Verses like this one teach us though, that Jesus already inaugurated this new age, that in his life, teaching miracles, death and resurrection, Jesus gave us a glimpse of this new age by giving us new life. He says in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, that the kingdom is already here. You're seeing it come in me. That work of seeing the kingdom come is happening in us. When our sinful nature is cut off, we are a new creation. We are experiencing freedom from the sin and brokenness of this life. We are restored to God. But in this new age where the power of sin is broken, this isn't just a spiritual reality where we are restored to God, but it is also a practical reality where in our world, in our bodies, in our relationships, everywhere, Jesus intends to set all that is wrong right, to heal what is broken. And the work of the Holy Spirit in us today, we are called to join Jesus in this work of seeing his kingdom come, of seeing this new age exist in the present, to see broken things put back together. So the power of the Holy Spirit fills us and gives us work to see bodies literally healed, lives literally changed, the power of God working among us, visual manifestations of this new kingdom. But the Holy Spirit also wants to instill the fruit of the Spirit in us. That in our lives, not just outside of us, but in us, we would experience this new age, being a new creation, this transformation of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the character of God. This is who God is, and we are meant to be internally transformed, made to be like him. This passage shows us how the death and resurrection of Jesus makes us new and is intended to make us new. But we juxtapose or compare that to Colossians chapter three, and we're reminded that we live in an already, but not yet kingdom. We experience freedom from the brokenness of sin in this age and in this time, but we're, we're reminded that until Jesus returns, not everything will be set right. Because in Colossians chapter three, Paul reminds us, we live in this tension that there is still sin to overcome in our lives, even as followers of Jesus who've accepted him and have been made right with him, we live in this tension of our new nature, which we're meant to lean into, and our old sinful nature, which still tugs at us. And there's this war that goes on within us. And the journey of faith is about discovering and living into as much as we can, this new life-giving, world-changing kingdom of God, which leads us into the last objective of Paul, which is the maturity of the Colossians or the substance of their life. So Paul begins to emphasize to the Colossians that it's important, how important it is they become mature and transformed and more like Jesus. And he kicks off today's passage with that idea. Verse six, and now just as you accepted Christ as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. 
So Paul sets the stage clearly of the, con- the conversation I began this sermon with, that upon accepting, believing, and confessing in Jesus, which changes our status, there is now a journey for us to take to become more like him, changing our substance. So we accept him, and now we must follow him. In verse seven, he talks about being rooted, building our lives, our faith growing strong. These are all illustrations of the journey of the Christian life, of walking with him. God wants you to know him deeper, wants your faith to continually grow, which sends us into verse nine, where it says, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body. So you also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. So in the same way that Christ is fully God, so God wants you to be complete in Christ. This is Paul's intention, is to say that as, God, as Jesus is the fullness, was the fullness of God in flesh, so God wants me to be fully as much like him as I can be, full of the fruit of his spirit. We exist as when we walk with Jesus, God's purpose and desire for us is to be formed into the image of Jesus, to become like Christ, Christoformity. And so here in verse nine and 10, he's saying, as Jesus is the fullness of God, so I desire in your life and your journey with Christ that you become as full of Jesus as you can be, as much like Jesus as you can possibly be. None of us will ever achieve that, this side of heaven or Jesus's return, but that is our goal. That is our journey. That is the true north that we walk towards. And then in verses 18 and 23, at the end of the passage, Paul says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying, they've had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. So here, especially at the end of this uh, verse 23, Paul clearly acknowledges that we're going to continue to fight this old and new nature battle, that we're going to continue to struggle with sin, and part of our calling and walking with Jesus is to overcome our sin. But he says there are always going to be philosophies and religions trying to answer the question of this world of how does this world work and how do I live the best life? That's what every philosophy, every human tradition or religion is trying to get at. How does this world work and how do I live the best life? They try to answer these questions. And and here in this passage, Paul is addressing teachings by these Judaizers, these Jewish Christians about how to overcome sin, which they suggest is through uh, denying desire, very strict rules of like, basically, if you don't do anything, you're not going to sin. If you don't uh, step into the things that you enjoy, but could lead you into sin, then you're not going to sin. And Paul says very obviously and clearly They provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Only the way of Jesus can truly lead to life. All these philosophies and these religions, their ideas are going to fall short. Now, what Paul isn't teaching here, Paul is not saying that there are no rules. I think what we need to understand is that the way of Jesus compared to some philosophies and religions is going to give us greater freedom, that we're gonna experience greater freedom in our life and in Jesus. 
And we're going to maybe get to have a little bit more fun than these people who think that this is the way to the best life. But then compared to other philosophies and religions, we're going to be, have less freedom, which is actually going to lead to better life. But we're, there'll be more restrictions comparatively. But the point of all of this is that the way of Jesus is the best way that leads to true, full life. So, as I kind of wrap up this sermon, I wanna talk about how I see this applying to our lives today. Where does this hit us? How does this speak to us? First, I wanna talk about yours and my, our status in the kingdom of God, our status in the kingdom of God. So maybe you're in the room today and you can relate very strongly with the Colossians. You've had other Christians or people question your faith. Are you really one of God's? Do you really belong to God? Are you truly a Christian? And they, people question these things on a lot of different grounds. Maybe you've experienced or went through a divorce. Maybe you've had children struggle and leave the faith. Maybe you've experienced great loss and your loss was blamed on a lack of faith or some secret sin. People, many people who experience same-sex attraction are often pressured and sent out of the church, their true faith questioned. Now, while every situation is different, all that matters is that you know God's posture towards you. We've got to know God's posture towards us. He loves us and he accepts us as we are. And if we accept, confess, and believe in him, then you belong to him. He claims you as his own. He makes you right with him. And if you have accepted Jesus as your savior and Lord, then God accepts you and that's the most important thing. But I just wanna say today, I accept you. Brother and sister in Christ, you belong here. You belong with him. Now let's walk towards him together. Second, don't be a gatekeeper. Maybe you've been the Christian that finds yourself often judging other faith journeys. You're the person who you see yourself as the gatekeeper, who gets in and who stays out. There's a difference between accountability and judging between love and self-righteousness, between protecting true faith and enforcing your view of faith as the only true way. In in my preparation, I read something beautiful um, from N.T. Wright talking about Paul's vision of what the church was meant to be. And his vision for the church, his vision for the church was a picture of the church being the best and the safest place to walk towards God and to grow in faith. It's a picture of understanding and compassion, taking seriously people's struggles and their questions and their suffering and lovingly encouraging them to look to God for answers, walking with them towards God for the answers to the problems and struggles and questions of this life that are honest and that are real and that we value. Romans 2.4, I was also reminded of this, God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's not shame. It's not condemnation. It is God's kindness and his goodness and his worthiness because of those things that we repent, that we would lay down our lives, surrender them to him and walk his way because he is good. Not because I'm frightened of him, because I'm worried that he's gonna send me to hell for all of eternity, but because he loves me and he wants to be so close to me 
And there is nothing and no one in this world that is close to as good as God. He stands alone. And this is why I lay down my desires. I struggle with sin too, but this is why I know that I can believe him and trust him. And even when I can't quite figure it out, I walk towards him because he is good church. And so when people come in this place and they're struggling, when people come in this place and they're asking questions that scare us, can we walk towards a God who is good and who is big enough? Can we walk towards a God who is holy and not scared of their questions? If they accept Jesus as Lord, then their relationship with God is secure. And as we walk into Christoformity and becoming more like him, let's trust that God is gonna work it out in us, amen? Sin in this world beat up on people enough. I think of John 8, where the woman who's caught in adultery is brought to Jesus and they're gonna stone her. Jesus says something really smart and they all have to walk away because they've got no answer. And Jesus says to the woman, where are your condemners? Where are those that condemn you? And she says, they're nowhere to be found. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. His kindness leads us to repentance. It's not our job to condemn, to beat up, but let's walk with people with the loving kindness and gentleness and understanding of our good, good father and allow and trust him to do the changing work that God needs to do in us. My next question as I prepared this was, how does transformation happen? This was another interesting question in my preparation. Uh, how are we transformed? How does this work? Is it, a, is it supernatural? Is it natural? I think some of us, some Christians believe that we almost exclusively are made more like Jesus through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, that only the things which God supernaturally imparts on us reflect Jesus. So I just gotta sit here and wait for God to do it. Many other Christians do the complete opposite. Through our effort and through following all the right rules, I'll begin to look like Jesus. And as I thought about it, the conclusion that I arrived at is that transformation resists being turned into a formula. The ends of only supernatural and only effort will only leave us wanting. I think transformation is found in the beautiful in-between, between the natural and the supernatural. We can never take away that in overcoming our sin and becoming more like Jesus, there are disciplines and acts of our will that we must live out to follow the way of Jesus. I'm not always going to automatically do or say or think the right thing. I'm not going to always wake up with the joy of the Lord and the fervor of the Holy Spirit to read my Bible and pray. There's a lot of mornings where it's really hard and mornings where I don't and because God's working on me. Some of you are with me, amen? So, but there's, there's this act of will. There's choices that we have to make. I'm not always gonna feel like Jesus. When I'm having an argument with my wife, I'm not always going to feel like Jesus towards her or think thoughts that would reflect the heart of God. I need to make Decisions of will to try to be more like Jesus even when inside I'm not feeling like Jesus. But I also can't become more like Jesus without relying on his presence and his power and his supernatural work in me. The Holy Spirit can and will in a supernatural way make us more like him, transform us if we seek him, give us more of his love, his joy, his peace, his kindness and his goodness that we would truly begin to reflect in our mind, our will, our emotions, the goodness and the character of Jesus. 
It's a beautiful in-between. Lastly, inward over outward. When it comes to our transformation, God is always more concerned with our hearts, with what's inside of us than what's outside of us. Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he criticizes them. He says, the outside of your life is sparkly clean, but the inside is filthy. He says, don't you know that you have to first clean the inside of the cup and then the outside will then become clean. The Pharisees got here as a result of rule following, of effort. They tried to come up with these rules because they wanted to follow God precisely and they lost vision of what God was actually about. This is where we get in Matthew 8, Jesus saying to these same Pharisees, I want you to learn the meaning of this scripture. I, uh, show mer- like, I want you to show mercy. I don't really, uh, I'm, I'm really messing this up. Learn the meaning of the scripture. Um, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. It wasn't that God didn't care about sacrifices, but he, he even says this in the, in the Old Testament. He's just like, if your worship means nothing to me if your heart's not in the right place, if you're not understanding what I'm really about, that what I truly care about is love and mercy. And you can get all the rules of worshiping right. You can tithe exactly right. You can sacrifice exactly right. But if you've missed my heart, then you've missed the point. In the Christian life and the journey of becoming like Christ, we too can fall into the trap of focusing on the outside, of controlling what we can control, of doing the things that we know follow God's way, but are very controllable and outward, and we ignore what's on the inside. We ignore the deeper things. In our transformation, God is more concerned with healing our wounds which requires deep dives into ourselves, letting God deal with our stuff, our wounds, our pains, our struggles. Hurt people hurt people. The inside always makes its way to the outside. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We have to let, invite God into our deeper struggles, looking at our deeper motivations, pride, greed, jealousy, self-righteousness, resentment, control, insecurity, these things that we are motivated by, that cause us to hurt others, that really are the things that make the outside truly dirty. God wants to deal with the deeper things. So let God into the big things on the inside and the outside starts to look more like Jesus too. So today as I close, I'll invite the worship team up, but let's remember For some of you today, it really hit home for you that God accepts you and he loves you as you are, that your status, if you believe and accept and repent, that you you have been made right with God. He loves you as you are. If you've not made that decision today, when we have opportunity for prayer at the end, I, I invite you, come up and receive Jesus as your savior and Lord. I pray, I pray, I pray today that you have seen that God is good and that he is worthy of your life, that his way is the best way. If that's not hit home for you today, I pray that it will, because that's what this is all about. It's about walking with a God who is altogether better than anything that we will ever find in this world. Your status, your relationship with him is secure when you accept him. Second, remember substance. For all of us followers of Jesus in here today, God is not done with you. And he is not done forming you into the image of his son. 
He has more work to do. And for many of us, that can be scary. For, for many of us, I feel like that should be exciting. God, you're not done with me. Give me a heart, oh God, that desires to look more like Jesus, to love more like Jesus, to think more like Jesus, to see more of your kingdom come in my heart, in my relationships, in my neighborhood, in my schools, in my workplace. Let Jesus continue, continue to form you. We are not done, amen? If you'll stand with me, let's... Uh, begin and pray and enter into worship today. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. God, you are so, so good in this place. Father, I pray during this time of worship that you would just convict our hearts, speak to us, Lord. Draw us to yourself. Help us to embrace the beautiful in between, the beautiful mystery of walking with you. May we live secure in your acceptance of us, but Lord, so deeply desiring and motivated to be more like you, to see your goodness in my life, in my family, in my workplace, in my world. God, may we stop settling. May we stop settling. We want more of your goodness in our lives, in our church, in our community experiencing it more for ourselves and our brothers, our sisters, our parents, those that are far from you. Lord, we want more of you, Jesus. Give us just an unquenchable thirst for your goodness, oh God. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.